0: Hi, everyone. Dave here from C-Lab Podcast. If you're finding value in this podcast, we'd really like to get to know who you are. So we're going to ask you to click on our site and add yourself to our mailing list. We're going to agree not to spam you, but at some point in the future, we may have special events, certain podcasts we want you to join on, or we might even throw in a class or two. So sign up today. It's not going to cost you anything. And again, we promise not to bug you. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice that stop growth dead in its tracks. I am Dave Darrington.
1: And I am Adam Avramescu. Awesome. yeah, it is awesome. I, I enjoy it. Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> being out of I, I, I enjoy being me. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, other times it's just crippling anxiety. But um, today we are continuing our mini-series of mini-episodes where we are analyzing different state-of-the-industry reports. And so this one is another hot-off-the-press report Uh, we're here going to be looking at SkillJar's 2020 Customer Education Benchmarks and Trends Report. So SkillJar is a customer LMS, uh, customer training platform, uh, you know, in that general area. For those of you who have been following the show, we've actually had Sandy Lin, SkillJar's CEO on the show. Dave, you interviewed her, right? Yeah, I did. It was a great interview.
0: You should check it out.
1: And we did a a live in the room episode with Linda Schwaber Cohen. a while back, at this point, mm-hmm. who their customer ones. education and product marketing programs?
0: Yeah, this is this is really cool. It's actually really cool now as we do these things and we're reading these reports. We know the people who are writing those reports and and setting the tone. Uh, Linus' team put together this report using a combination of different things. So they used customer data, and then and this is my favorite thing where we get all excited about data: the aggregate usage data of their own product. So. That's kind of cool. Similar to the Thought Industries report, we looked at the majority of respondents worked at companies with fewer than 500 employees. And about 68% of the respondents had customer education teams with fewer than five people. And I think I want to double down on this, this point here because, again, we've seen this in a couple different reports. 500 employees or less, that kind of indicates that first wave of customer education where you're just building and you're starting to learn. And then after that, you start getting into the more services-driven plays, I think. So this is, this is interesting for us as, that we're starting to see a, a validation and a perception of where customer education fits.
1: These are largely customers or companies, I should say, who are using customer education to drive growth of their core product. Again, right. like they're, they're in growth mode. And so they're not necessarily at the point where driving revenue through customer education programs is gonna be the most important thing.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, so we'll, we'll see some of those trends um, and we'll question some of them. And this report actually has some really interesting counterintuitive findings too. And while we won't, uh, we won't spoil all of them for you, we'll <laughs> talk about a couple of really interesting ones. So first of all, though, given the timing of this report, it launches straight into the impact of COVID-19. Overall, it tells the story that uh, COVID-19 has had a strong impact on training programs, which is Mm -hmm. unsurprising. Um, One of the interesting things is that students overall are spending more time engaging with training. Uh, Another thing that we're seeing, this one's probably less surprising, is that there's uncertainty around program budgets. Right. And similar to what we saw in the TSIA report from a couple of episodes ago, we are seeing a trend towards providing discounted or free training to customers in light of the pandemic while people are at home learning more.
0: Yeah. So Adam, with people stuck at home, they're naturally now starting to spend more of that time they have. You know, they're not commuting. It's glorious. Well, sometimes I like my bike ride into work, but I'm one of the rare exceptions that don't have that half an hour to an hour commute. Um, They're spending that time doing online training. Um, Forty-six of respondents, forty-six percent. I'm sorry, of respondents, essentially half say they're seeing an uptick in the time they spent training, with only about twenty-seven percent reporting a decrease. So that's really compelling.
1: Yeah, consumption is going up, which is kind of an interesting response to some of the other reports we've looked at so far, where it really talks about the need to get customers, I I should say, more customers into training. So whether that was the install-based and account-based penetration rates, we saw at the TSIA report, or the disconnect in the Thought Industries report between the importance of training versus the actual number of uh, customers that were trained. It's interesting to see that COVID-19, despite all the terrible things that it has caused, um, is leading to sort of a reversal in, in some of those trends where customers are actually spending this time getting, getting educated.
0: Yeah, that's great because they have yeah. the time now. I mean, it's a compelling argument for more work from home in the tech sector.
1: Absolutely. And so on the budget side, though, most programs don't expect their budgets to change. And those who do largely expect it to, to decrease by less than 50%.
0: Oh, now, the
1: exception here, because they have this, they have this broken out, the exception is going to be non-technology companies. So you can imagine there's a divide right now between how tech companies are feeling and how non-tech companies are feeling. Uh-huh. Um, because if you're in retail or manufacturing or, or something like that, you are feeling a stronger impact from COVID-19 than tech companies who are more or less enabled to already do things remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those non-tech companies are the most likely to see budgets decrease by 50% or more, which is going to be a meaningful downsizing.
0: Yeah, that's pretty su- substantial, and I mean, we've definitely seen people in an industry go, "Hey, you know, jobs are getting cuts. Uh, but there's plenty of plenty of uptick in my industry where I'm seeing, "Hey, we have more business, we have more content to create." That's very good. Well, let's get to the takeaway. So, Skilltrust takeaway is that this makes demonstrating ROI more important than ever. Uh, and here's some recommendations about what they think we should do. First, they recommend integrating training programs with their C, with your CRM, right? Most of you have them, um, Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics, HubSpot even, uh, that, that can make the ROI calculation a lot easier. And I'll go back to some of the things that, that Adam, you know, we've talked about, I've talked about in some of our presentations, I really enjoy the data and getting to that ROI. Uh, at, at Gainsight, for example, when I had my tenure there, it, we, we really were able to get to that. What, for example, and I'm not going to go in the whole calculations and all the things you could do, but let's just take one. One of the things that I did is made a very compelling dashboard. Gainsight was a data tool and allows us to get a lot of that customer success related information about, you know, I tied my LMS to Salesforce and I can make a correlation, even light to say that, Oh, for accounts that consume training, Compared to those who did not consume training, there was a demonstrable up, uptick or it, you could see the, that they churn less and they also had more revenue uh, come in, which was really cool. This is not rocket science either. Once you have that interconnect and you can start to extrude product adoption and, and everything, you can start getting these pictures on what's happening. How are you making ROI?
1: Yeah, we've seen a really good similar dashboard. I mean, we had one at Optimizely. We've seen Pat Durrani, who used to be mm-hmm. the uh, president of Sedma. He's now at AWS uh, certification. Uh, he's shown some really good dashboards that that visualize this very simply. But, I mean, in addition to ROI becoming important, it, it's always been important. It's more important now. I think there there will more also be now. some impacts that we'll see in this report on monetization. But before we leave this topic, one thing that's really interesting is Even though we see a lot of uh, programs who don't expect there to be a ton of negative impact on their budget, uh, let's tie this to a finding from later in the report, 37% of the respondents were actually unsure what their annual training budget is. So I think for a lot of smaller programs who don't necessarily, they don't operate on a they work at companies that probably don't have like super defined budgets for different departments and maybe it's all generalized or rolled up. Uh, these the, these projections about whether their budgets will increase or decrease are kind of a moot point because the way that they're getting budget is they're going and asking some senior leader for that budget. It's not like they actually have like a revenue target and a budget to operate against. Yeah. So I don't know if that's interesting, but on the monetization front, SkillJar also saw a trend towards uh, new pricing strategies, right? So we said we are going to talk monetization. Most respondents didn't really change anything around their pricing yet, I should say. Um, 21% did open up some courses to non-customers, and over half of them now offer some courses for free or at a discount. So again, similar to what we saw in the TSIA report, there is definitely a trend towards people um, removing paywalls from courses right now because, you know, Dave, we've talked talked about this before, this is a time to shine for education programs. It's a time to
0: shine, yeah.
1: And it's a good way for companies to give back while also providing opportunities for their customers or prospects to learn more about how to get the most out of their platform. So in a way, like this is, I hate to say this because it sounds cynical, but like this is is a marketing opportunity for education programs who have been under-marketed because now you've got more learners who are at home trying to learn things or maybe people who are out in the market trying to reskill.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably one of the bigger ones. You know, Adam, I think we're, we're probably going to see this pay dividends in the future too. Um, there could be more in products that people, well, let's, let's, let's think about this a little bit more. It's not just about goodwill, right? I think about what TechSmith did recently. I, I, I will, I will give you a practical example of something that's deeply impacted and helped me is that TechSmith, you know, Wendy had talked about this when she was on the show, they have given out um, the video review tool that they have for free. And, oh my gosh, does that make a difference for us in our organization? Because we use Camtasia, and this isn't a pitch or an ad for Camtasia, but we were having a pretty big challenge in doing a review. When they opened that up, Well, not only did that help us because we're all now working remotely and I can't sit next to Evan or other team members and say, Hey, what about this? And Oh, let me look at that. And now it's a, how do we collaborate remotely? They solve that problem for my team with a free product that I will now buy. There have a, have a revenue uptick now after that, but it's benefiting everybody. So, so this is really cool. It's not about just goodwill. It's about showing interest in other products that you might have in your ecosystem we're just taking advantage of that time that now I now have, because I don't have to commute and I could sit yeah. down and schedule that time. So this people is People have really more cool.
1: time for it. People are trying to reskill. And so, you know, when, I made that comment earlier, it's like, I, I actually don't think people are trying to be cynical about this or trying to be opportunistic. I think that companies are actually trying to give back right now in, in any way that they can. And one way that companies can give back is through education. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, let's, let's, let's switch topics. The report, also went into the idea of training audiences. So Dave, Mm. what what did we see there?
0: Oh, I love this. I love this topic. It actually just came up yesterday too. Um, SkillJar found that training multiple audiences, like not just your customers, but partners, prospects, and your own employees was actually very common. Uh, 18% of programs train all four of those uh, cohorts uh, and 33% train at least three. Now, if, if usually if one wasn't included, it might have been prospects. So I'm going to step up on my little soapbox here and, and, and talk about this a little bit more openly and candidly because I see this as, as a customer education as being a really powerful tool, particularly in those, let's say that, I, I think we're kind of seeing a delineation, Adam, that 500, seat, 500 employee mark. Right. Until you get to that, and this is what I've seen. A lot of companies don't really have time for enablement teams for sales enablement or an HR team for LD. They just don't have it. They don't have the resources. And a lot of the time that they look at me because, oh, you've created the product training. Oh my gosh, we could just use that for our own employees, couldn't we? Could we use that for our partners? Absolutely. Why should you have several different teams generating similar content? And customer education is a really great source for that kind of stuff. So, so I, I think this is really interesting. That multiple audience thing is a, is, is compelling. We, we learned a lot like that. We can help more than just our customers.
1: Yeah. I I don't know. Did we do an episode on this, Dave? I feel like at some point we might've done a hypothesis about, uh, should your internal and external training be the same? And, and I, I think I, I agree with your premise, but not necessarily your conclusion. Fair. So, the way I think about it, I, I completely agree that if you are doing great customer education and that education is related to your product or industry best practices, well, it makes sense that there are a lot of people in your partner base and in your employee base who will also benefit from that same content. Totally agree sure. with you there. Um, that said, I mean, I've, I've worked at sub 500 person companies where there's still been a lot of value in having. Like, even if you're going to repurpose that out of customer education, you still do have L&D, you still mm-hmm. do have sales enablement, because it's a bit of a Venn diagram, right? The Venn diagram yes. of product knowledge that's appropriate for your internal audiences or for your partners, there's still a bunch of stuff in the, uh, the, the non-overlapping part of the Venn diagram, right? Like, as a customer education team, if you're also being pulled into oh, how do we create these um, you know, sales skills courses for our right. sales team uh, or for our partner base? If you are not focusing aggressively on doing what you do best, in some ways you might be diluting the value and the focus of of your own team. You're not going to be able to specialize as much. And mm-hmm. even sub 500, I would argue that's still important.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I will close that loop is in saying I agree with you there. I would say that one of the... One of the key things, though, is to re- recognize that as a customer education function, where you're focusing on, on your product, as you evolve, you should start seeing, like, I don't prioritize internal training or, or partner training initially, but I include it. And at some point, those teams start to appear and then, you know, like our support team also uses our LMS to onboard and do enablement for them. But they're teaching like, how do we do this? How do we approach this? It's more about approach, but the product training is still something that you will continue to have over time.
1: Yeah, it's it's we are in violent agreement now. Yeah. Um if you're doing a great job with your customer education programs, there are going to be other audiences like partners and internal and even prospects who who will benefit from it. But I do think it's interesting that prospects is the group that gets left out the most in this analysis. And I think that tells us, Dave, is that educating prospects is still considered to be marketing's job.
0: Yeah. I worry about that. And, and frankly, I mean, we're, we're building a lot of information. We're building a lot of, we're building a lot of content. Why can't prospects benefit from the same material?
1: Yeah. Well, and some of it might be a reporting structure thing. So, you know, about 10% of the respondents, of this uh, particular survey reported into marketing uh-huh. versus over half of them reporting into customer success or pro-serve. So, you know, it might be a, a sphere of influence or what is customer education here to do in your organization? Um, but, you know, we we saw some interesting echoes of this uh, in a report that we haven't talked about yet. We'll talk about it next episode, the Intel and Forrester oh, cool. report, um, where, you know, when we think about pre-sales customer education versus post-sales customer education, like pre-sales customer education is often thought of as the domain of marketing. What does marketing do? It educates the market about your product. It generates awareness and interest. So post-sales customer education is often just thought of as its own specialty and not, you know, there might be some overlaps with marketing, but it's not really the same discipline.
0: Yeah. Yeah
1: yeah and I think some of this is company size again, right so we we see this trend for smaller companies. education typically reports into customer success as you get larger, it's usually customer success or professional services uh-huh. since that function like professional services only gets defined when companies get a bit larger and like all the other reports we've seen, this one strongly indicated that the top training goal was product onboarding and adoption, closely followed by customer retention so When you think about what is a customer education team here to do when you report to customer success or professional services? Well, definitely when you report to customer success, you are there to do product adoption, product onboarding. Like that, that is probably the reason why your company has decided that you need a customer education team.
0: Yeah. Uh, Maybe customer retention,
1: same thing, right? Retention is a team sport we talked about last time.
0: It is. It definitely should be. We're, We're seeing that strong trend towards onboarding and adoption. That's the primary goal right? We want, Oh, you're a customer. Now we need to get you up to speed first, but then it, it it usually start there. Okay. I can get customers on board, but what about the people that have already been using the product? And then now you have to start to define that journey. So yeah, that makes all, that makes all kinds of sense since uh, that's a crucial part of the customer journey. Doesn't often get scaled very effectively or at all. Um, I see that all the time. People are like, I'm killing myself. I'm doing this training. I'm doing, I'm doing this over and over again. I'm like, why are you doing that? Let's just sit down. Let's record it. Let's get into an LMS. Let's drive people to it. It It's it, sadly, it's a matter of control and why people don't do it. And it's a matter of we just don't have time or we don't have the resource of why that doesn't happen. Um, okay. So let's get some numbers. The um, customer education can, as we know, make a huge difference in this respect in this onboarding and adoption place. From the numbers, 75% of respondents engage most frequently during onboarding. Yep. Makes sense. And most of those focused on new accounts and not new users in existing accounts. Again, makes sense. Only about 20% really focused on that ongoing usage. Uh, And that's, you know, if you think in terms of the university style grading or coursework system 100-200, you're not really getting those 200-300 level type curriculum. The more advanced content that goes beyond the features uh, until you get into the adoption plays. So, Yeah, although
1: it is interesting the way that you just laid that out, the fact that they're focused on new accounts, mm-hmm. not new users on existing accounts, tells me that that 101 curriculum, even if you could be using it 90 days, 120 days, six months, two years after the initial onboarding, the companies aren't capitalizing on that as much as they should, which suggests to me, like we talked about in the previous episode, that, Training is still thought of as a point in time activity, not yeah. as this ongoing, continuous process, continuous program that supports onboarding as your customers continue to add new users or as points of contacts, turnover. Um, so it's, it's interesting. And, and what you're saying resonates with me. I, I would argue that for that 201, 301 level um, curriculum, yeah, many education programs aspire to do that but it's time, sure. they never get around to it, or priorities. But what they don't realize, and we talked about this actually in the episode where we interviewed Matt from Miro, is I, I think a lot, of, a lot of companies don't realize that they just cram too much into onboarding. So the
0: kitchen sink phenomenon?
1: They t- yeah, they took the 201 content and put it in the 101 course. Yeah. So some of this stuff that you put in the onboarding actually needs to be the more advanced ongoing content. Because if you don't, huh it that way. If you don't actually chunk out your content correctly, you're going to encounter cognitive overload. You're going to overwhelm those users before they're ready.
0: Can I interject something? You, you may. All right. So, and I'll definitely let you get back to this. I had a really cool experience earlier. That, maybe it was last weekend. So I decided to play a new game. And you know, I love games. We were talking with Daniel Quick and he loves games. So it kind of falls under that. The game is Unreal Tournament. And it's an alpha that goes back to the version 20 plus years ago. What, what really, and you'd say, Dave, you're, we're talking about games here. This is a customer education. Oh yes, it is. Games do customer education in a way that is unprecedented cool and cool. If that's a word.
1: I'm also um, very excited about this because I think we'll have referenced every past episode that we did by the end of the series.
0: Yeah, this is a bonus. I love this. Well, it's a good way. I mean, here we are at, at, at the end of the beginning of the year and reflecting on, you know, what changes we need to make to our curriculum or our thinking about the before times, before times, the good old days before COVID. Anyway. Okay. Games. Back to the story. Games, Unreal yeah. tournament video game. Why is this? What, what happened Dave? That was compelling. Well, what was interesting is it said, Hey, let's do this tutorial. Let's do the intro tutorials are, are almost always abysmal in video games. And in the the worst ones, Again, it's this commonality between video games and real and customer education because this kitchen sink thing, this adding everything into it, trying to get somebody to know everything is not what game designers do. What a game designer does that's really good, especially for platformers, is they start easing you in and grouping and chunking different kinds of skill sets over time. And it's it's very... Scaffolding. It is. It's called scaffolding. So what compelled me, what really got me was... I knew all the weapons and I played this game 20 years ago. And they get you into this big hall, this like this catacombs type thing. And there's little rooms that go off to each side. And you go to the left and the right, and the left and the right, all the way down. There's probably eight different segments with two sides each, like 16 different weapons that you could use. So I enter the first room and there's a little sign. And, and then I go up to the sign and it starts talking. You need to, you know, blah, 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 do this. Oh, easy. It's click right button, click left button, do something. And then it gets progressively more advanced. But I was, it was intriguing because the way they set things up, they had these little moving targets, these like people, like warriors that were moving around and they do certain things. And if you shot them, a little ball would come out and, and be an unlock for this big key. So you'd have to shoot all these things and do whatever it told you to do and then unlock and you can get the key and you go into the next room. Then as you turn around, you can look at a light outside and it said it wouldn't complete. So I'm getting this great understanding of the product, right? This, it's a product, it is software, it's SaaS. We just don't think of it that way. So thinking about that, like how onboarding is such an important thing. A game designer will look at how do I get people to understand the skills they need to do so they can be effective and not churn. When I churn, I bounce off a game because it's just not interesting anymore.
1: Yeah, so, absolutely. So what, what are we doing to hook people at the beginning and to, I mean, to your, to your analogy about Unreal Tournament, how do you make that that onboarding moment where proverbially your users are are in the hall, they have the uh-huh. weapons in front of them, they're trying to figure out what they do. I mean, those are your features, right? Yeah. Uh, how do you make that experiential and how do you let them find the value in using those things and using those things in the proper way? Yes. Versus you just telling them, like like handing them just, the unreal tournament manual is not Okay, so we're going to do, do what uh, Unreal Tournament can teach us about customer education, or maybe we can do a game that I've played. I'm but putting know, it on the we'll backlog. Do, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that one in the future, maybe for our fun episode at the end of the year. Indeed. But Dave, to your point, like about churn, the, the risk here, I think, is that if you don't focus on existing accounts, they're bringing on new users too. And uh-huh. if those, those new users don't get properly trained, those users fail to get value, and that's what leads to churn.
0: Right, and that's all software. Like the idea I said about games, like, if I don't understand how to use the game, I give up. And you do the same thing, the exact same thing with software. You throw up an objection. it's too hard. I don't understand it. That's churn.
1: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So this report covers some similar territory as well. Like mm-hmm. we, we, know, we know that driving product adoption is really important to these programs, but they are also looking at monetization.
0: Oh, let's talk about do that. How monetize
1: these programs? Yeah, so Dave, what, is, what does the report have to say there?
0: Um, this is interesting. And, and it found that most program budgets are increasing over time. Thank God. Okay, that's great.
1: But that is might, that because, yeah, go ahead.
0: I was just saying it's going to be, I'm probably reading your mind. It it's, might be related to results, the programs, you know, they, they achieve, or perhaps because they're growing companies. You know, on the other, hand, the other hand, most trending leaders who responded don't have any idea what their budgets are. I haven't. Uh, I, I now probably have better understanding of what my budget is than I've ever had in my career, but now I'm at a bigger company in professional services and I have to. Um, at startups, training leaders, they're typically not the budget holders, nor they in it, and frankly, it's a distractor. If you cannot do that, that's fine, as long as you have a stake in it. Um, but it makes it difficult to advocate for yourself if you don't know what your budget is. So that's that's interesting. We're looking a lot into budget and monetization.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, we've heard Maria Manning-Chapman from TSIA say that you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're always going to go back to the well, asking for your next headcount, asking for your next system. If you can't prove ROI every time, you're going to have a harder, a harder road. And, and the TSIA yeah. report did actually look into that quite a bit, That's fee versus free spectrum. So here in the Skillshare report, uh, 56% of the programs that were surveyed do charge for training, while the rest are free. And of that 56% of the ones who do charge, most actually still offer the majority of courses for free with only some requiring payments. So we really are seeing a fee-to-free spectrum there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and that might be like offering premium content. So again, it makes sense, right? Because the top goal is supporting onboarding and driving product adoption. And if you're doing that, you don't necessarily want to put all of your customer education behind a paywall. You want customer education to support product adoption and not create an additional cost barrier. Um, so even even though a lot of this training is probably coming with the software license and the TSI report had some interesting reflections to share on that for larger organizations, here it, it kind of makes me wonder if these programs don't have any revenue focus, like are those the ones that are going to be caught off guard next time they go to the well to ask for budget?
0: That's, that's definitely a possibility. You know, it might also be why most of those respondents do plan to monetize their their program a lot further within the next year. Like, I mean, I think about that all the time now more than ever. Well, let me tell tell you that story just real briefly with, with what we're doing right now at my current company. We've had those dialogues like, Oh wow. You know, I want to scale up and do these things. Maybe now it's time to develop an onboarding package that includes this and this and it's extra because a lot of companies don't think about buying services when you're in that sales sales thing. They go, Oh, well, I'll just get the product and it'll be fine. And even more so they forget about education services. And if you're not thinking about those upfront, I see this all the time. A company comes along and says, Hey, guess what? We need to need you to come out and you need to do this training for something. And then as soon as I say, it's going to cost X thousand dollars, they're like, Oh, Oh, wait, wait. I thought that. Uh, I thought uh, never we'll mind. Cost- Let's
1: go learn that. Yeah. Don't, don't you want us to be successful?
0: Yeah. And, and of course you do that for a while and you say, okay, well, we're just going to come and do it because anything it takes, but you can't afford to do that for long. You have to be revenue centric because at some point in that reflection inflection point, you're going to need, you're going to need to pay for your, your, you're, you're at the table. It's like you're, you're at home in a family, you got to do your part of the chores.
1: Well, but that's, that's where your, your point about fee to free, you know, but having a, a package to offer really makes sense because if you have great free resources and they're scalable, and there's you know kind of fixed costs associated with them. You can easily say to that customer, like, "Hey, this is the basic training that you get from the c s m uh-huh These are the online resources we have. These online resources are great, and you can get all that stuff for free yeah' but, I think they
0: note, don't they note in there that you know customer training isn't always seen as an upsell. Um, more are comfortable funding their program, funding their own program because of the benefits it provides you know it provides Customer success and product adoption—that's what we
1: do. Yeah, so like, there's going to be some free free training in there. It's going to be focused on product adoption and customer success. Will either start needing to, you know, they, they can do the basic training themselves. Uh-huh. They're you know from your CSM. Like, most CSMs do some sort of training, um, but they're not not necessarily going to be able to make it super bespoke. They're not necessarily going to be able to package yeah. it up in a broader uh, learning plan or implementation plan they're not gonna be able to work with you as deeply. So if you are a larger, more complex customer with a more complex implementation, well, hey, let's think ahead. Like you probably do want some sort of services package and that services package should include education. But if you truly are going to be okay doing this on your own with self-serve resources, that that that's okay too. Like, especially if you're a smaller company. So yeah. I think we're gonna see more fee-based programs or, these programs are just going to start to get really, really, really good at proving the ROI and the impact that they have on the metrics they say they drive like product adoption. Yeah. That's a hot button,
0: isn't it? That in the report, 68% respondents are integrating with the CRM 65% with an access to like a single sign on like Okta Uh, because what they're trying to do is get better at tying that customer data together uh, and showing that impact. And, you know, I'll say here, one of the things that's really, this is, this is hard. Because let's say you do single sign-on. Single sign-on's great. I have it set up with my instance of SkillJar. And the, the objection, the issue that it routes around is, I know anybody going to my LMS. I know who they are. I know what account they're with. It's easy. That's all integrated. I don't have gaps. I don't have to clean up that data. But if you don't have that integration point, then you have people, you know, jane doe at gmail.com. I don't know who that person is. Even if they sometimes type, a company and it might not map to what I have in my CRM. So it, it, it's really, it's really hard here. You need to be able to measure outcomes. And that's what uh, some of the things we're, we're thinking about this integration with the CRM is really geared up to do. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say this, these two points here as part of my soapbox Speaking to this whole thing, integration with the CRM, getting access to an SSO, two things I think you should do, and you might not agree with me, but these are things I think you should do when day one or be I usually agree with them.
1: you about data stuff.
0: Usually. Connect your to connect to your CRM or your data warehouse as soon as you can. Yeah. That at Outreach it took me months, many months to get that done because
1: it, Yeah, so start start asking as soon as you can.
0: Yeah, you have to because by the time you actually need it, which is, you know, later, you'll have it and you'll have been recording it. Now it's a matter of you know, like I think my VP asked me someday for some numbers, and I just gave them to her. Like, what, you, already, you already had that, yeah. I did this first, so that's a huge ROI because execs are going to come to you and ask for it, and you have it. Actually, they're going to they're going to think you don't. Um, and implementing SSO just makes everything more streamlined. The caveat being, there's cases when you might want to give somebody who's a prospect access to your training material, and then you can't do that easily. Um, so you should think about when you want to make this happen it's i've been in some sticky situations there
1: yeah absolutely if you if you don't get those systems implemented if you can't start figuring out your plan for SSO or to connect your LMS with the CRM or to get all of that data into a data warehouse well a you're you're going to have trouble proving impact because those um, systems won't get connected but b like those are those are always hot button issues and have a lot of complexity so you're probably going to run into a, a stumbling block. But oh well. once you do have the connected, you can start looking at those downstream e- effects and actually doing correlation analysis. So Ooh. exactly. So, you know, like, like all of the reports we've seen so far in, in SkillJar, most of them are measuring improved product adoption and, on, and onboarding. Yeah. Several of them are measuring CSAT. Yeah. And a lot of them are looking at retention. Those are the most common ones, right? Basically, every report has has now told us that that's what customer education programs are all looking to drive. Um, There were a few other, there were some less common ones. Some were looking at product expansion as a signal for account expansion. Some were looking at driving support costs down, and Uh some were looking at NPS. But those seem to be a little less common.
0: Yeah, they're... they're yeah. not the first string. I mean, you, you mentioned the first few or those are hot. Those are easy. Everybody knows them.
1: Yeah. And I mean, NPS might be because not everyone uses NPS. And also because I don't know if, well, I don't know. I mean, training does have a link to NPS, but it, it's not necessarily, I wouldn't look at it as closely as something like product onboarding or adoption because right. there's a, a much clearer story to be told there or like support costs is a much clearer story to be told there. In, in some ways when you're doing a correlation analysis, you can't just like, Anything can correlate with anything, so you have to be able to tell a story about like why you believe that that correlation is is valid. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to get a bunch of questions. <laughs> and you should. Uh, exactly. But so similar though to the TSIA and Thought Industries reports that we looked at over the, over the past couple of weeks, there is room for improvement in uptake, or that's what the TSIA report called penetration. So everyone is still looking to drive more uptake of their training.
0: That's good. Which in turn should drive uptake of your product. Um. Then we get into some actual data from SkillJar's platform. Now that's, this is cool. Maybe there'll be a gap between what respondents say and what the product data actually tells us. You know, that's, it's all, it's always like, if, if my doctor tells me something, I'll say one thing and it might not be the full truth, but he looks at my blood work is like, what the heck you've been doing? You know, that kind of thing. We've got the data. I'm a big data guy. You know that, um, actual you, would you ad- say you, you listen to
1: science, Dave?
0: I, yeah. Well, I'm a scientist, man. Back off, man. I'm a scientist.
1: (laughs) That's that's a good bumper sticker. (laughs)
0: Um, So what do we see here? First of all, that most course completion happens within a day. A day, okay? Likelihood that a student's going to come back to a course after three days, seven days, 30 days. Uh, It only slightly ticks up from a one-day completion rate. So you've yeah. got a limited amount of time to get somebody. You've got to, cap, you've got to get that audience captive, and you've got to get them through the material.
1: So basically, for, for a given course, for the average course, if they can't complete it in the same day that they start it, you're not necessarily going to see a lot of uptick in, in the likelihood that they'll complete it after that first day. I think this is really cool yeah. because we, we, don't, we don't think about these stats a lot, but here SkillJar is actually providing insights from their platform that, uh, that tell us what people actually do.
0: What, what about, let's translate that into numbers. Like we're talking course size here, right? Like module Well, yeah, size. so we
1: talk, yeah. So obviously if you want something that's gonna be completed in a day, then you might expect there's an inverse relationship between course length and completion uh, probability. So yeah. the sweet spot for course completion seems to be uh, either between zero to 15 minutes. So mm-hmm. I guess 15 minutes or less. Uh, I wouldn't take a zero minute course, would you? No. It'd no, be, we'll be amazing to
0: pack it all in my head that quick. I'd we'll go for f- that.
1: 15 or less. And then uh, there's another peak between 30 to 45 minutes. So hmm. I don't think this is saying, if I interpret this data, I don't think it's saying that 15 to 30 minutes is, is bad by any means. And, and I think if you, if you look at how some of these break down, it's not like that. there's a significant decrease. I think some of this is just kind of like a data, data anomalies because of the sample size. Oh, I don't know.
0: I, I would actually argue.
1: Okay, tell me, uh, tell me more.
0: more. Well, so I've been perusing a lot of YouTube and, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm-hmm. And my assertion would be this, that zero to 15 minute is more like that entry level. I got to hook somebody. It's that, that first product video, you know, it's the small stuff because a lot of the times, and, and I work in sales now, and in sales, you've got a very, you, you've got strong-minded individuals who resist a lot of the time the training because they've got their method. To, to sell and it works for them. And we're coming in and saying, well, we're going to change all that a little bit. Same thing we did for customer success, the same thing you do with every product platform. We're changing. This is change management. I want those small, those first videos to be small and concise because if they deliver value and there's not a lot of, a lot of time, um, a lot of time commitment on my end and I learned something from it and I can use the product after that. Holy cow. I'm going to do that. Five minutes, 15 minutes I'm, I'm up and running. Cool. But that 30 to 45 minute, that's a different one. That's more like that virtual instructor-led training, not the on-demand training. Uh, not all—not always. Um, 30, 45 minutes is a good virtual instructor-led training session or a big meaty module that's more like, well, think of the, the the audience. I'd say the first part of the audience is a lot more end users. The latter part of the audience is advanced end users and administrators are people that are setting up and configuring the system. That's, that's just how I've seen it. You may see different
1: well but then so I, I agree with everything that you just said except for then why why would you think that 15 to 30 minutes is lower
0: i don't think it's anomalous at all i think it's just an artifact of the different uh, audience cohorts so you know on one hand you people that that have don't have a lot of time they're just getting into it and then it's just in time i oh 30 seconds in an appendo or, you know, two minutes, three minutes in a marketing video that tells me how to do one functioning function or an education video that tells me how to do like some workflow. But on the other hand, 30 minutes is what's going to take me to deconvolute uh, a really complicated administrative function, like a best practice around setting up content in what we would call sequences. How do we develop that? How do we do AB testing? You've got more ground to cover. Right. And, in, in, in advanced topics are more, I'm assembling several different things like a workflow is in an, an, an several different features wrapped into, okay, now I do this. Now I have to think and I have to do this. Now I have to think and I have to do that. So somebody may be a lot more prone at that point because they want, they've invested the time. They know the product to come back and do that. That that's just what I'm thinking. It, it's a hypothesis. Okay. So, so it's like,
1: I'm willing to sit down for something that's snackable under 15 minutes and I can complete that. Oh yeah. And I'm willing to go to a 30 to 45 minute like VILT type session because there I think I'm going to learn kind of like one, one topic, uh, top to tail, but 15 to 30 minutes is, is that like awkward middle where it's neither snackable nor like a full session. Is, yeah, is, that, is, that, is that what I'm hearing?
0: Yeah. And this is a hypothesis to test, Adam. This is what we're, what we like to do, but that's, yeah. that's just well, where it I makes be, sense to me.
1: I will be curious to see what this looks like next time Skilljar does the same benchmark. Because when you look at the 2017 results, there is a very strong, like typical inverse curve. Right, zero to 15 minutes, mm-hmm. 78% completion rate. Yep. 15 to 30, 64% completion rate. 30 to 45 minutes, that goes down to 48. 45 to 60 minutes, it's about the same. It's 49. Uh-huh. One to two hours, 42%. Two to three hours, 27%. Yeah. And then Strangely, in the 2017 data, and again, this might be sample size, three plus hours, that completion rate spikes back up a little bit to 47%, which might tell me that when you have a course that is more than three hours long, now you're talking about something more like a full day training and maybe it's like a certification course and there's more incentive to complete it because yeah. inherently the stakes were higher. But the 2019 data, it's a lot more like upsy downsie uh, which is the scientific term.
0: (laughs) Discontiguous I think is what you're looking for, but yeah, I'll go with that.
1: I love love it. You always, you always teach me new scientific terms. Zero to 15 minutes, 57%. 15 to 30 minutes. That's a 45% completion rate. That's our awkward middle 30 to 45 minutes. It's a 55% completion rate, 45 to 60 minutes. That goes back down to 46%. So we're, we're now hovering more in the, 40s and 50s, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the curve is a lot more uh, normalized. I, I didn't want to say flattened because of, uh, you know, we're talking so much about flattening the, the COVID curve, but um, <laughs> we are... So many references. I love it. It's a, it's a lot more normalized, right? Like the difference between a 57% and a 45% completion rate is dramatically different than a 78% and a 42% completion rate.
0: Oh, good God, we're nerding out so hardcore. But let me tell you one more thing I'm thinking of. Okay. I would love to see, and and again, let's go back to SkillJar and say, hey, SkillJar, if you're doing this again next year, I would like to see this broken up along different audience cohorts and different intentions, right? Because you have the the modality of how things are being expressed. Is it a live course? Is it an on-demand course? Is it a virtual instructor-led course? Is it a micro-learning component? And I think that would be more telling. I think it would be... You're you're pulling out the signal from the noise a lot more, because I think what we're seeing here is just an aggregate. This is aggregate. This is what is said in the data. This is aggregate data showing these times. But I don't think it breaks it down as to get us the the granular, the, get us to the variables that we really have in play. Um, what was the content about? You know, what what are we doing? Like, and, and I'll go on from here and say, what are those types of people, uh, types of content people are are consuming or using? You know, for me. That, and for you, I think as well, some of the time is video. Um, it's common. Again, we'll go back to we're talking about Wendy Hamilton. Um, it, it's something I valued about the relation, you know, the discussion I had with Wendy was that she had asked me, it's like, Dave, people are making content. You know, What, what do you think the number one area, the number one destination is for the content that we're making on Camtasia uh, is? And, Remember this because this
1: is the cold open to her episode.
0: But th- this is an interesting hypothesis too. It's like, for me, it's YouTube, right? And that's, yeah, that's the answer. It's YouTube, it's video. It's common because, you know, followed by, by HTML or maybe some text that you'd put in your LMS or maybe you just have them in a website. Video is very consumable and it's easy to create. Uh, I have people talk to me like, well, why aren't you using SCORM or XAPI? I like, you know what? I don't have time for all this crap right now because I'm trying to build the material the first time through. I'm trying to build it. Nobody has ever gotten this far. We're trying to build the content. And it's basically, you're, it's like you wrote a book in customer education. You were the first one who actually looked at the entire spectrum of what customer education is. And you laid it out. And that's what we do the first time through with customer education. And then we come back and we think about the other modalities, right? It's not that SCORM is not is bad or instructor-led training on-site is bad. It's more time investment and more technical investment and more uh, cognitive load because you have to worry about other things. I want to do it simple and I want to do it fast. Um, and that, that seems the point, again, going back to the SkillJar uh, report, uh, customer education programs are producing content that combines bite sized written content with videos. So, yeah. I mean,
1: you know, I, you're, you're actually making me think this is now, this is my crackpot theory. Is uh-oh. that, <laughs> we, were talking, we, we were talking a lot, actually, this isn't even that crackpot, but we were talking a lot about how before COVID,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, if we talked about this is one of our, one of our previous episodes, before COVID onsite training, was very popular not just because it was a revenue driver but because that's where customer demand was like if your if if your theory is you want to pitch customer training to someone in a way that will get the least eyebrows raised Mm -hmm. um i should say the fewest eyebrows raised the uh least uh pushback then you are going to suggest doing some sort of classroom training because that's how people think training works yeah and that has been true, that's received wisdom, and a lot of people still believe that. But I think we're starting to see something similar with video, right? Like now that we're in the age of YouTube, now that people are used to watching quick tutorial videos and things like that, that I think is, is now starting increasingly to become the default way that people think about education. So if you wanna have it is. a perfectly unobjectionable education program that is hosted online, what are you gonna use? you are going to use video. Now, that sounds like I'm attacking video and I'm not, but I'm suggesting that that, I think, is part of why it is so prevalent to the point where it was by far, like, you know, heads and tails, the most common lesson format within SkillJar's courses.
0: Yeah, and I mean, SkillJar is newer as far as LMSs go. And, And again, going back to my point, video is easy. Uh, But I think it gets discounted because from a traditional context, uh, a formal education instructional designer may just poo-poo that. Right.
1: It's like, it's not the way things are done.
0: No, it's not. But what it's challenging, and I'm sure you have this problem too. It's challenging to hire instructional designers to work in a customer education team for a couple of reasons. One of them being that a lot of them are used to a smaller, you know, not a, I call it full stack instructional design. What I mean by that is you're eliciting, discovering, you know, researching all the way to delivering and everything in between. Meaning that video now uh, I would say polish your video skills up big time, get Camtasia, get it, you know, any of the video editing, captivate, uh, articulate, um, how, how Adobe Premiere, you know, there's all these tools out there, but that video stuff is really compelling. It's really fast. It's go to market stuff.
1: Yeah, that, that makes sense. And and you know, I think we see this again, like given that video is so prevalent, the second most uh, common one was HTML. Uh-huh. And then there's a more significant drop like VLC and Swarm are on there, but they're definitely lower. They're, they're, they're the only ones before what you might consider the long tail. Yeah. Of uh, quizzes, HTML5, PDF, survey, embedded websites, other like by that point, these are used very infrequently. Video is uh really starting to dominate in in these lessons. And you mentioned Wendy Hamilton. We've seen some of the research from TechSmith that talks about mm. the ideal length for high-performing videos. And yeah, usually they are. They're they're micro learning, they're below the 20-minute mark, and that jives with the the research that we see here from Skilljar. So Customer education programs are producing content that combines bite-sized written content with videos. And I absolutely agree with what you're saying that if you are an instructional designer looking to go into customer education, polishing those video skills is a great way to reskill. Absolutely. And so finally, uh, SkillJar looks into one of our favorite topics, which we have discussed on previous episodes. And, and in fact, even in this series, it's come up on, I think, every report we've looked at, <laughs> certifications and credentialing. Yay. Yay.
0: We love it. in the thick of that. Okay. Tell us more. All
1: right. all right. Yeah, I will. So similar to the Thought Industries report, 41% of respondents didn't do this at all. They did no certifications. And if I recall, yeah. actually, I think that number was very similar to the thought industry's number. Um, but 45% did offer some sort of certificate of completion. So not necessarily what you would call a full certi- uh, certification, but this would be like a certificate or um, yeah, like a certificate that you offer at the end of the course saying- Like
0: saying evidence of completion or something. So-and-so <laughs> has completed
1: fundamentals of underwater basket weaving 101.
0: Good, admirable, good job. And
1: nearly as many offered either badging or non-proctored certification. So what you would consider like a low stakes cert. Mm -hmm. So again, for programs of this size, makes sense because you're not necessarily going to see a lot of formal proctored certs um, when your company is fewer than 500 people unless, you know, Linda and I did a a, a webinar at one point where we were doing sort of like the, the onboarding matrix. And if your product is high stakes, high risk, well, then you probably are going to go more towards high-stake certification as a way yeah. to onboard your customers, but that's pretty rare for a lot of SaaS companies. Um, and and again, this prioritization makes sense given that the time and costs involved to create a full certification versus the actual impact of doing that high-stake certification, it's not effective ROI and it's not effective trade-off versus uh, doing like a certificate of completion or a badge.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. It gives me a lot of cause to to think. And we're, we're actively working towards a high stake certification program, but we're doing that for a reason because it's a market differentiator to help administrators have portability of their career to get, you know, move along. You, you have to be thinking about what are the, what's the value behind the things that you are developing.
1: Yeah. Um, so, so Dave, are those incentives aligned? Cause this, there was actually some really interesting uh, counterintuitive findings here.
0: Yeah. This, that's, let's talk about this because, you know, we're reading these reports and we're trying to process this. The, the, Data they showed, they compared the completion rates of certificate programs to non-certificate programs. And in this case, the certificate programs had lower, this is weird, overall lower completion rates. So my question from that is, oh geez, does this mean that certificates might not be great in census?
1: Okay, let's put a fine a fine point on this. For the programs that offered a certificate, mm-hmm. they had overall a lower completion rate. Yeah. Whether it was a one day completion rate, seven day completion rate, 30 day completion rate, total completion rate. Those were all lower than the overall non-certificate courses. Yeah. Well, I think that does point to the idea that you shouldn't, we we talked about this, I don't remember now if it was this episode or a previous one about how sometimes you might be building a certificate program because someone, maybe someone highly paid at your company says (laughs) you need to have service. And that in itself is not a good reason to build a full certification program. Like as the, the learning leader, you need to be thinking about what role certification actually plays and not just like slapping uh, a certificate on the end of your course and expecting that that's going to drive uh, you know, better engagement. Because oh, once yeah. you start putting the word certification on things, now you're setting an expectation that there's gonna be more content, there's gonna be a higher workload for you to produce it and for the, the customer who is taking that certificate um that there's going to be more rigor uh-huh. so I'm, I'm actually not surprised to see that there's lower completion rates on these programs than say a lighter weight program that is more of like a micro learning based experience because you might assume that for these courses that do have credentials and do have certificates these are probably overall longer more in-depth courses
0: yeah and and i have to call a little bs on some of us here just just being transparent so, when I was at Gainsight, we built an administrator training program that was a prelude to the certification program, right? It's getting you up to that test. And the completion rates on there were staggeringly high, even compared to a lot of my smaller stuff, because I felt there was a lot of, there was a clearly, clearly spelled out value prop and call to action as to why you would do that. So, I, I, I'm wondering, kind of like what I'd said before in one of the other points in, in this dialogue, that I'm wondering if we don't have all of the variables clearly, you know, we we're not getting all the signal out of that noise. Uh, Uh, Yeah. I
1: I, I think one thing that we can say here is that, you know, certifications are not, if you build it, they will come, they will come. Like it's, it's,
0: you really have to push those
1: marketing. Yeah. Marketing is still important regardless of which any program that you're building, but the more effort that it's going to take for someone to complete that program in a way, the more that you have to make sure that you are correctly marketing the value
0: of completing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I'm going to say, that's where a lot of, a lot of times you fall off the rails is that, okay, I built this program and nobody's going there. What's the value? Um, Also something, I kind of want to wrap that off. I I think we're, we're seeing an angle in there, but I think this is good data. And I think it's in in general true. Something else I really want to, again, take a soapbox moment on is that when we talk certification, all of you who are listening about customer education, please repeat after me and help us out. Certification is fundamentally different than a certificate of completion. There should be from a continuum of low stakes to high stakes, but there's some stakes, some skin in the game, some risk on the end of, of somebody who's taking an exam or trying to get that. Just giving slapping a, if you say you have a certificate or your certification on some class you give, it's not apples to oranges or it's apples to oranges. They're very different things. Would yeah, you agree?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think some of it is just a, it's a terminology issue. It is. It's like how, you know, something that's not training can be called training and we can get pedantic and say, well, it's not training because it doesn't <laughs> have learning objectives or something like that, right? Like it's sort of the same thing with certification. Like when, when you create something that you say is a certification, probably to a lot of your like let's say you're using a certification program quote unquote as a way to do marketing for your product or for your industry Uh well you might call it a certification um and you have all the appropriate caveats and disclaimers uh, about what it does or doesn't mean to the market mean to the market and a bunch of people will go through that program and they'll get their certificate of completion even though you've called it product x certification
0: yeah
1: right um so it's kind of a terminology thing where I think that, you know, you can call a lot of things a certification program, regardless of if under the hood it's a true certification program or if it's a certificate of completion. I think you just have to be very clear in setting expectations for what um, that certificate should or shouldn't mean to the market.
0: Very good. Setting expectations. Thank you, Adam. You made it,
1: you know, cut to the cut to the quick. Um Cut to the quick. That's what we should have called Daniel Quick's episode.
0: Cut to the, you know, in retrospect. Ah, great.
1: all right. Uh, well, while we are ruminating on the past, let us look to the future. Um, we will ride into the sunset here on National Road Trip Day.
0: Oh, uh, a you, day. It's a great day.
1: It's always a great day. So if you want to learn more about this report or see it, uh, it is over at skilljar.com with a bunch of other great reports, webinars, um, and other customer education thought leadership. And if you want to learn more about us and our podcast, we have a website at customer.education where you can find show notes and other material. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm at evermescu,
0: And I am at Dave Darrington. Special thanks to Alan, sorry. Special thanks to Alan Koda for our wonderful theme music. And if this, my friends help you out, you can always help us out by subscribing in Apple Podcast, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice because it helps and leave us a positive review on apple Podcasts. because that helps even more those two things help us to expose our podcast to other
1: people and keep this conversation going and to our audience thanks for joining us go out and educate experiment and find your people thanks everybody thanks for listening